welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm very pleased today to be joined by our new researcher, Ben McIntyre. Welcome to the podcast and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative, Ben. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, very happy to, to be here and to get started finally. So Now, Ben, you've just returned to New Zealand from the UK. You were born in New Zealand, is that right? No, no, I was born in France. You were born in um, France? Yeah, oh. which is where I grew up until I turned 16 and I came to New Zealand for the first time to go to boarding school in Auckland, right. uh, uh, Mount Albert Grammar. And the family connection is your father was born in New Zealand, is yeah, that yeah, right? Yeah, my father's yeah. the real Kiwi. Yeah, <laughs> okay. And most recently you've been studying politics at Warwick University. That's right, yeah. I went to the University of Warwick for five years. I did an undergraduate degree first in politics, international studies and Italian. Then last year I did a master's in international security, Great. which is more fun but also sometimes more depressing side of international relations. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you're adding to the intellectual diversity of the New Zealand Initiative, and it's great to have you on board. Now, tell us a bit about your background, the, the sorts of things you're interested in, and why did you study politics, for example? Well, I studied politics for a, a myriad of reasons. The main thing for me is I wanted to pick a degree that I found interesting more than I thought would lead to specific jobs or anything. I just wanted to enjoy my degree more than anything else. And what I really liked about politics is that the term politics... Is it, it's, it's a very wide umbrella, right? There are many, many things that fall under the definition of politics. And at Warwick in particular, there were uh, so many different modules and courses you could take under that umbrella, which were particularly enticing. So that's why I studied politics in the first place. And then what really interested me whilst I was doing my undergrad degree was uh, geopolitics in particular and how states interact with each other, which is why I chose to then uh, specialise in international security when I got to master's level. Yeah, the main thing for me was to was a, a, the ability to study a, a breadth of topics and to be able to explore such a wide variety of subjects in depth. And now that you're at the initiative, you're turning your mind towards educational matters. So the first thing that you're going to be working on is the question of, of streaming, that is the practice of dividing school children, young adults, into groups depending on some idea of their academic ability can you tell us a bit about what you might be doing in that space? Sure. So the first thing I'm looking into, of course, is, a, is, is to write a, a research note on, on this particular topic. Streaming is something that's quite a common practice in New Zealand. That we're not entirely sure about how many schools do it, but we're under the impression that most of them do. And streaming, or, or tracking as it's called in the United States, is a, quite a commonly practiced way of doing school, for lack of a better term, but one that's not necessarily examined in all that much detail. Mm. As it happens actually currently in New Zealand we we have a debate which is leaning towards banning streaming and the Ministry of Education's position is that it's inherently unfair and it recommends that schools shouldn't do it though it still leaves that decision to the schools themselves and there are quite a few reports by various organisations which are calling for the to, to end streaming because they're um, they, they claim that they're inherently discriminatory or put down uh, students who get put into into, into lower streams. streams. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, it is a complex little issue because you can see on one hand a, a rationale for doing it if teachers don't have to deal with such a wide range of achievement levels in, in a class, then they, they might be able to focus their teaching more carefully on the, on the level that the, the students are at in their class. On the other hand, as you've said, there may be a stigma attached to being in a low stream which might result in young people feeling they're not good learners and therefore not doing as well as they might. 
Yeah, the, the main thing I've come across so far, and I should probably stress I'm in the early stages of researching this particular topic, so I'm by no means an expert, is that the term streaming is a very general term, and there are many different ways to stream. Some schools divide it by two, and they have a highly gifted class and the rest. Some stream to a higher, to a much more precise degree. Some only stream some subjects, some stream all subjects. And obviously, as you might imagine, that creates a very nuanced and varied pool of results. And so to summarise streaming as either good or bad becomes a complicated thing to do because you, it, when someone says streaming, that leaves many questions to, well, what kind of streaming are you doing? So that in itself creates extra complications that are sometimes lost when uh, talking about this particular topic. And we might think that the Ministry for Education is itself guilty of that to a degree, that, that it has oversimplified a bit and even relied on research that might actually not be very reliable in that it tends to be qualitative and, and quite unrepresentative, perhaps. Yeah, that's the main issue I found so far with research into streaming in, within the New Zealand context, is that it relies very heavily on anecdotal evidence. So one often cited report points to the example of Horofenua College, which banned streaming for its mass classes and saw better results as a result of that. Now, is that because of streaming? Is that because of added resources? It's hard to know, but the implication of these reports is that it's because it ended streaming, which is great, but Horofenua College has 696 students, so it's not exactly a very wide a very large statistical basis to make such assumptions. With regards to the Ministry of Education, they are definitely, so from what I've seen, deferring their opinion based on New Zealand-specific research, which, as you mentioned, is entirely qualitative in nature. And we're looking at some more quantitative research from international sources, particularly the United States. Mm. And so we will look forward to a much more nuanced examination of the research literature in the report. And with a bit of luck, the ministry will read it and <laughs> allow that to inform their thinking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, you know, it's, it, it is worth pointing out that American-based research or British-based research isn't perfect either. The, the obvious one is that it's not about New Zealand. So there are, sure. many, there are many things that will be applicable in an American context or a British or a, a Belgian one, as, a, as we've seen recently, that won't apply at all to New Zealand schools and doesn't relate at all to the schools that New Zealand, the issues rather that New Zealand schools face. But that being said, the fact that they're quantitative in nature or, or more quantitative in nature should hopefully give us a more detailed and nuanced view of where or how streaming is good or not good and how we can alter it or change it or abolish it if that's the right thing to do. But hopefully if we reach such a conclusion, it'll be with actual statistical evidence to back that idea. That's right. And I guess the other thing is that, I mean, you're right, of course, school systems vary and, and those contexts matter. On the other hand, children are children everywhere. They all have the same learning apparatus inside their heads. They all have the same motivations or the same sets of motivations. And they're all susceptible to the same challenges to their, their self-images if they're put in a low stream or something like that. So a lot of the same issues will apply perhaps across the board. Yeah, absolutely. I think, as you mentioned, children are children and a lot of experiences for young people are universal. That being said, going to a, a rural New Zealand secondary school probably presents a whole host of unique challenges that going to a mechanical school in Flanders, Belgium, doesn't and vice versa. Yes. So it's important to take all of those things into, into context when we review. Yeah. So that's your first piece of work at the initiative. But what do you look forward to doing in the future if, if we were to say... 
what would be your favourite thing to, to look into? <laughs> it's a difficult question. I So this also ties in a little bit to why I wanted to join the initiative in the first place. So when I was finishing university, I found the process of doing research and then you know forming opinions and writing about said research to be very rewarding. So I knew I wanted to do something like that in my professional life. And one of the reasons why I really like the initiative is because it's such a broad range of topics you could possibly explore, right? There's, there's not just education, there's economists here, there's historians here, there's a bit of everything. So there are many things that I'd like to do. I'm not really sure which one tops the list right now. One of the things I think is very exciting about this year in particular is that it's an election year. So I would like to explore topics that are relevant to the upcoming election and that are relevant to New Zealanders with regards to what they may or may not be voting on. So if we stay within education, that could be things like funding for education or education for students with disabilities or anything, something along those lines. If I was to think outside the box, then one of the bigger topics I've noticed since I've got back is discussions about crime rates and why crime is worse in New Zealand and what can be done to stop that. And that's a point of contention between most of the major political parties. So if Oliver and Chelsea let me, that'd be something I'd be quite interested in researching as well. But the, the great thing and the difficult thing is that there are many, many things I would like to research and discuss and write reports on and only a certain amount of hours in the day so it's quite a good good problem to have though oh yeah (laughs) Yeah. you're right of course there are a great many potential things out there and and of course there's your international relations background as well so foreign policy could be another area yeah absolutely have you have you given any thought to to that since returning to New Zealand I mean you come from the UK which is I mean, we would say a declining world power, <laughs> but it, it remains an influential country in the world. New Zealand, a country of five million odd people, you know, well regarded around the world perhaps, but not with a great deal of influence. What, what do you think the, the foreign policy challenges might be for, for us in the next, in the coming years? It's a, it's a very good question. I think, so this actually, so I, I've actually been thinking about New Zealand foreign policy since before I got back, because that's actually what I wrote my dissertation on. I wrote about New Zealand foreign policy in the Pacific specifically. And one thing that's unique about New Zealand is that, yes, you're right, of course, and on the international stage, we have limited to almost no influence because five million people, as far as other countries are concerned, a long way away. It's difficult to have more than a major influence. That being said, New Zealand tends to punch above its weight in that regard. What interests me in particular is New Zealand's role within the Pacific. If, I was, if I'm to briefly mention what I wrote my dissertation on, it was about how New Zealand's portraying its relationship with the Pacific in a new light and a sort of, we are now, you know, th- these are our brother countries and we, we want to have a relationship on equal footing and all that sort of thing. And that's not necessarily true. So it's moving for, the rhetoric is that we're moving from a more paternalistic past to a more egalitarian future is that, is that that's the rhetoric yeah they yeah. called it they, they initially called it the pacific reset uh, in 2018 when they announced a whole swath of new foreign policy initiatives in the pacific and yet yeah, the um the rhetoric used was very much in in that line of egalitarian partnership going forward the actual policies involved an increase for example in new zealand defense force presence in the pacific which isn't necessarily you could very easily make the point that that's not an egalitarian step forward that's a the strengthening of New Zealand's influence directly in the Pacific. Do you think that that is the reason for doing it, or, or did the Pacific nations in question it's want, a, want that presence? Or? So, it, so it's 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 dif- it's very difficult not to fall into one camp or the other on this one. You either think well, a lot of the time people either think that no, it is a step in the right direction and a 
development of uh, of more equal ties with the Pacific. And other people say, no, that's just a facade. And actually, it's about maintaining New Zealand influence in the Pacific as the most as the bigger country, so to speak, as the big fish in the small pond. Not that the Pacific's a small pond, but uh, a, re- a relatively unpopulated, <laughs> relatively unpopulated pond. Like a lot of things, I think the truth is a bit more nuanced than that. There's elements of truth to both claims. I think there is a genuine will to see a more equal partnership between New Zealand and its and, and its Pacific neighbours than there was before. But that being said, New Zealand also doesn't want to cede any influence in that regard. And you have to remember that the Pacific is not a vacuum. There are other countries that have interests there as well. Well, I, I was going to say, the, the, the rise of Chinese power in the mm-hmm. Pacific must be of concern both to New Zealand and perhaps to some of the other Pacific Island nations. Yes, absolutely. And New Zealand's response was to pretend it wasn't a problem. So I think, juggling my memory now, but in a, I think it was a New Zealand Herald, Herald article, the foreign minister... Foreign affairs. Foreign affairs, yeah. She said, oh, we're not concerned, it's not going to change how we approach our relationship with the Pacific and all that sort of stuff, which might be true, but that might be true because it takes a long time to change an approach, especially if you spend that much political capital setting it up in the first place. Other countries were more uh, expressed more immediate concern. The United States is clearly one of them who have an interest in the Pacific, and we can tell that very recently with their um, agreement with the Philippines which is, a, uh, I believe, it was to create, uh, to, to have more US defence influence in the Philippines from memory, which is a direct response to Chinese incursion, so to speak, within, within the Pacific. I think Australia and the United Kingdom haven't done anything about it, but have expressed concern as well. So it, you know, it is an interesting topic and one that I'd like to explore further. I think New Zealand ultimately would not like to cede any more influence than they have to in the region and will seek to maintain what influence they have through further trade agreements or increase New Zealand Defence Force presence, which is what they've done in the last four to five years. I see, yes. So lots of scope for work in the future here at the Initiative and it's really good to have you on board, Ben. Thank you. We'll look forward to future podcasts, to things that you write and and to your reports. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting stuck into it. Great. Well, thank you for listening and see you next time.